Hello, this is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind with me, psychologist Professor Richard Wiseman. And me, science journalist Marnie Chesterton. This is the podcast where we delve into the psychology of everyday life and answer your questions about human behaviour. That's right, your questions are at the heart of the show. If you want to send one, simply send a text or voice message to at WisemanPod or head to listentoonyourmind.com. And in return, you can expect fascinating facts, scintillating science, and this might even improve your life. In this episode, we're once again taking the opportunity to answer some more listener questions that you've sent in over the course of the season. Things that are so good that we wanted to talk about them. Such as, are summer borns really luckier? The psychology of stealing. And our attention spans really getting shorter. Huh? You're miles away. Yeah, no, sorry. I was off somewhere else. Let's get on with the show. Right, we have a lot of questions to try and get through today, so let's just get stuck in. Our first question of the day was sent in after listening to our episode on astrology. And they ask, in your episode on astrology, you mentioned the effect of the time of year that a person was born and that that effect is reversed in New Zealand. So is it weather related? I've always believed that it's related to the school year. For instance, in the UK, Leos will be the youngest in the class as the school year starts in September. In New Zealand, the school year starts in February, so it'll be Aquarians. This must affect development, certainly far more than where the stars were when you were born. So I always get confused about this. So uh, in terms of physical maturity, winterborns in the UK tend to be more mature in the school year. And so they're more likely to be in sports teams and so on. Our research looked at the psychology of luck, which is to do with optimism and sensation-seeking and so on. And what we found was summer-borns in the UK uh, were luckier than winter-borns. So we weren't looking at physical maturity so much as something to do with the way in which you saw yourself and, and see the world. And what's the thing about in New Zealand, it's the other way around? Right. So then we went over to the New Zealand Science Festival, did the same study there. And what we found, again, was it was the summer-borns over there, which would be the winter-borns over here, that, that's right, that consider themselves luckier. So it seems to be something to do with, if you like, the warmth when you're born is somehow affecting long-term development. And we don't know what that mysterious bit is. But yes, it's the summer-borns in our studies, that's in terms of luck, that seem to score higher than the winter-borns. And that does seem to be weather-related. We don't know how. But the important thing is that these are tiny, tiny effects. We use thousands of people in the study because that's how many people you need in order to detect such a small effect. So it's theoretically fascinating. In practical terms, probably has no impact at all. And in terms of the population, there are in the UK, I think, more summerborns than other times of year. Yeah, that's to do when people, to use the scientific word, copulate. <laughs> Uh, and so, so yes, there are certain type of people who tend to do that in the winter months, which is why you get more people born in certain months and oh, so on. Oh, that explains also why there's a sort of population bump nine months after power cuts. That would be exactly it, yes. There's yeah. nothing on the telly. Yeah. What else can we do? Yes, that's right. It just shows how creative we are. <laughs> Moving on from astrology and heading to the criminal underworld with our next question, which was sent in by Mark Pawson. And... This, is, this one's right up your street, I think, Richard. He says, Dear Richard and Marnie, thank you for all your hard work on the podcast, which is wonderful. Mm -hmm. 
Thanks, Mark. Um, yes, thank you. Please, could you explain the psychology, magic or combination thereof, which I suspect is involved in the recently reported thefts of Rolex watches taking place at posh golf clubs in the south of England? They remind me of the watch-removing magician. I'd like to know if there are some psychological aspects at work too. There absolutely is. I mean, with, with all this sort of pickpocketing and so on, and I have been caught by this. So uh, Has someone nicked your watch? Uh, it's, someone, it's gone now. Where's your Rolex, Richard? <laughs> it, wasn't, uh, it wasn't my watch. I mean, magicians have taken my watch during shows yeah. because they're very good at distracting your attention. But in the real world, I was in a restaurant once and somebody came up to the table asking for money. They'd obviously wandered in from outside the restaurant. They're going from table to table asking for money. And they kind of separated some postcards. They got four or five postcards. And they said, do you want to buy one of these for a pound or something? And I said, oh, no, we're not interested. And they moved to the next table. In spreading them out and putting them over the table, they'd taken my phone from the table. Yep. What do you mean, yep, as if that's the most no, obvious thing? I'd had exactly the same thing happened to me. It was some guys came up. We were at a coffee table outside in London and my friend had his phone on the table and these guys came up and they had a map and they put yes, spread the map out on one. the table and yes. they went, where is Tottenham Court Road mm. or whatever? And we weren't really sure because they weren't fully behind their story. It was like they didn't seem to care. After they'd picked their map up and left before we could tell them, we uh, we went, that was really weird because they seemed to want to know a place but also didn't. Is everyone all right? Has everyone got everything? At which point my friend went, oh, crap, my phone. Ah, OK, um, I don't feel quite so bad now. I thought you were about to say that you rumbled them early. And that, no, no, right. no, no, no. no so, it's the flustering of someone's come up and you're you're busy going, oh, what's yeah. happened? What's happened? What, what do they want? And, and also from a magic point of view, the attention is going on the postcards yeah. or the map. And there's another one with maps where people move into you in the street and they're essentially rummaging through your pockets or bag while they're putting a map around your nose. In fact, there's a well-known psychology experiment where somebody comes up to you, asks you directly, but then while you're giving the directions, two people come between the two of you with a large board and the person who you're speaking to switches for somebody else and you oh. don't even realise the switch has been done. No. And when we did it, you can actually switch oh, it. Oh, no, sorry. When we did it. We did it on television and we switched it for somebody wearing an animal costume. <laughs> and still the person didn't notice. Amazing. Incredible. <laughs> So when we're attending to one thing, uh, it's difficult to, to spot something else going on. The other one which happened to me, which happened to me in Spain, I was in a hotel lobby and somebody walked past me and said, oh, is that your money on the floor? And I turned and there was a 10 euro note on the floor. As I was turning and looking, they took my bag oh. and walked off. So I realised something was up instantly. And I thought, I don't know how to respond because they're now heading towards the exit. And I thought, I reckon that there's probably some friends of theirs outside and if I get involved physically, there's more of them and in fact, even one of me and um, one of them would, would not work out very well. So I didn't know what to do. So I tutted. I went like that. Yeah. They turned round and I went oh, like that. Yeah. And they put the bag down and walked out. Can I say like that is, is Richard's making a come on. Yeah, come on. What, what's this about noise? And I think they realised they were dealing with somebody very strange and just decided <laughs> to put the bag down. So I tutted, I tutted. and foiled the robbery. Yes. I, <laughs> That's I amazing. I wouldn't recommend tutting as a way forward under those circumstances. Um, uh, I, so absolutely, yes. I, I want to know more about the watch-removing magician. I don't know anything about that. Uh, so there's a well-known magic trick where you have your watch taken by the magician and then that's given back to you should be emphasised at the end of the act. And the fact is that people just don't 
don't notice. They think they would. But if there's reasons to touch people in certain ways and so on, then you, you just don't notice your watch being taken. So someone can nick your Rolex from off your arm and Any you watch wouldn't at notice? All. There are books and DVDs and videos on, on every type of watch strap and how you get hold of it. So, yes, these things are out there. Magicians, of course, are only using this to entertain mm. people for a force of good. But you could imagine how the same skills are being used for what I refer to as evil. Right, moving on. Moving on. We have a parenting question sent in by Priva from Palo Alto, California. And they ask, what makes for a happy child? Do happy children make happy adults? Are helicopter parents doing more harm than good? And are relaxed parents hurting their kids' future? Is there a window in which you either bond with your child or not? So that's a lot. It's a lot of questions. I can answer them all in one answer, which is that I don't know. I'm not an expert on, on the psychology of parenting. What I do know, which we can talk about because I, I'm somewhat insight into it, is the, the very broad notion of growth and fixed mindsets, which is the idea put forward by Carol Dweck quite a few years ago. And this really does apply to lots of aspects of parenting and interaction actually with both children and adults, which is whether you are telling children that in some way they are fixed as individuals or there is the ability to grow. So Carol Dweck's work looked at, or some of it looked at, the impact of different ways of praising children. So if you're got a child who does very well, you can either say, oh, well done, that's because you're smart, because you're intelligent, i.e. it's a fixed trait, or, well done, you tried very hard. And of course, trying is growth because it's about something that you've got control over that can change over time. Can and I, can I say, yeah, no, yes. no, 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 no. Um, can I say that I know this work because I remember I read it and then my parents, who are brilliant people, but I suddenly thought... Do you know what? My mother has never praised me for trying. Oh, no. My whole life. And so I went to her and I said, do you know what? You never praised me for trying hard. And she, she just kind of was busy doing 14 things. And she just looked over and said, well, darling, you never have tried very hard. <laughs> and I thought, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, they can't argue Bruce with that honesty. one. Bruce honesty. <laughs> Well, Carol Dweck's idea is it has a big impact on kids. And the theory is that if you praise kids, let's suppose they do a maths test and you say, oh, well done, you're very intelligent. One of the things that sets up is fear of failure. Because if you fail, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just evidence that you're not intelligent. Where if you say, well done, you've tried really hard, then if you fail, well, you can just try harder. It's an opportunity to grow. And so you, some very nice studies where you take kids, you give them one sort of praise or another sort of praise, and then you give them harder maths tests. And the kids that have had the, well done, you tried really hard, are open to the even harder maths tests, where if you said to them, actually, you're really intelligent, they tend to avoid these difficult situations, these trying, these challenging uh, maths problems. And because of that, they don't learn maths so well. And so you end up with the kids that have got the growth mindset doing better than those with the fixed mindset. Now, these are contentious studies, I've said it many times, there are replication issues and some psychologists don't agree with them, but I think it's a fascinating idea and one that we don't really think about very much with the way we interact with one another and particularly the way we interact with children. 
going back to Priva talking about happy children, if you've got a child who obviously you can see has a fear of failure and, and they react to not being instantly brilliant at something by deflating like a balloon, is there something that you can do? Can you, can you let them in on this mindset? Would that help? Or do you just go at it and say, come on, you're, you're trying really hard, even though that still makes them deflate? I think it's to do with the language we use. And again, it's not a Carol Dweck idea. That it's as simple as I'm not very good at mathematics versus I'm not very good at mathematics yet. Now, the magic yet word means there's room for growth there. And so we should celebrate failure in schools. We should celebrate kids not doing very well because it tells them where they need to grow. Instead, what do we do? We give certificates and awards to the kids that have done well. Well, they should be the ones coming to the bottom of the class because actually there's not so much room for growth there. So I think it's just ingrained in us that actually that somehow there are gifted people out there and we should say you've done well or you haven't or whatever. But actually it's not about that. It's about is there an opportunity to grow and learn and, and that underpins a lot of the way that we interact with kids and a lot of the way in which we teach kids. So the growth mindset idea now is getting incorporated into school. So I say it's a contentious idea, but it's, it's out there. I find it enormously powerful. I mean, but why wouldn't you put that in, even if it's contentious? It, it's worth a go, right? Yeah, and actually there's some evidence that kids that need this most, those are from lower socioeconomic backgrounds, the ones that benefit most from it. So I I think it's an excellent example of psychology making a real difference in the real world. We've had a question sent in via Twitter about sleepwalking. Love your pod. I've sleptwalked all my life and often hear people saying people don't know what they're doing when sleepwalking. I really doubt that as I sort of do that time I tried to climb out of my window, I was sort of aware. My question would be, why were you trying to climb out of your window if you were sort of aware? It it sounds like when we when we go back to our episode on uh, hypnosis, people said they were sort of aware, but also that they, they didn't know why they went along with it. Yeah, it that to, sounds like this. Yeah, it speaks to consciousness. And we should say, and we say it every time, you know, if, if you have a real issue with sleep or dreaming or or anything else actually we're talking about, go and see a professional. In this instance, remember we spoke about the difference between a nightmare, which is happening in dream state, and sleepwalking and sleep talking, and actually night terrors, which happen in deep sleep. So it's this weird state of consciousness where you are both aware and unaware at the same time. Sleepwalkers do walk around. They do sometimes attempt to climb out of windows and, and, and so on. The important thing I think is not to wake them up suddenly, but to do that as gradually and carefully as you can if you do feel the need to wake them up. Why? Well, because they're in a deep sleep and you don't want to really bring somebody back into conscious state. You can do that from a dream. If someone's dreaming, you can wake them up and actually it's not too upsetting. But from deep sleep, they can get very disoriented very quickly. And also they're not really aware of what they're doing. So they could knock over a glass that smashes and that can be problematic. So you can try and create sort of safe spaces, as it were, if you, uh, with somebody who's, who's sleepwalking or indeed are a sleepwalker. Often associated with anxiety, so it's helpful in the daytime to try and reduce that. And sometimes if you reduce the physical warmth of the room, make it a bit colder, it also reduces sleepwalking. Is it common to a lot of people do it? With kids, around about 10 to 30%. With adults, you're hitting about 5%. So depends on how you, you see those figures. I think but that's if it's more, issue, more common than I would have thought. Yeah. If it's an issue, go and see a professional, but fascinating from a sort of theoretical, from a consciousness point of view. 
Now, this is an interesting question on a subject that comes up quite a lot as we discuss different psychological studies, and you've just mentioned it. This was sent in by Julia, and she says, Hi, do you have any comments about the replication crisis in psychology? I absolutely love the podcast, but many of the results presented sound a bit too good to be true, maybe. I just listened to an episode about clothing, and I wondered about the study where fake designer handbags or sunglasses make people cheat. Is that study repeatable? Thanks for a great learning and entertainment. So the replication issue in psychology is vital. And what we're talking about is that whenever you do a psychological study, there's all sorts of things that can influence the outcome of the study. And so it's important to know that when other scientists carry out the study, they get the same result. And that's been looked at in psychology, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. It's got to be said that probably the same is true of other sciences, and they haven't quite latched on to the replication issue in, in some of those sciences. It'll be interesting to see what some of their findings will be when, uh, when they look at that. But within psychology for all of this, what I would say is what we're giving people is ideas. You know, try this, see what we see what happens. And with any of these studies, there will always be individual differences. You know, things will work for some people and not for others. So it's hard to say, oh, yes, this effect will work for absolutely everyone. You just don't get that in psychology. So I would say, you know, think about it. If it, if it seems to work for you, great. If it doesn't, don't do it. But, but theoretically, again, replication issue, yeah, really, really interesting. And it's one that's, that's going to come up time and again as we go forward in psychology. Yeah, so you do get people coming up with funny unrepeatable results for all sorts of reasons and sometimes it's it's picking their sometimes it's just not understanding how to do the stats on some data that you've got mm -hmm. sometimes it's cherry picking you know you've you got a result that you, you didn't like but then that person was being a bit funny and maybe it's not the best thing to include them in the study some people are just frauds yeah there's, there's all of those things as there are in pretty much all the sciences but I always come down to the practical side of it, which is that, was that helpful? Was that interesting? Yeah. Did, it, did it make life more interesting for you? And that's because we're not talking about people with serious problems. They should always go and consult professionals. But, but for everyone else in particular domains, it's just like, oh, it's either helpful or, or it wasn't. And that's how I see these studies. This is Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind, and in this episode, we're answering your questions about anything and everything. And if you want us to keep doing this, we need your help and support. Please, please review us and share the episodes with your friends. You can subscribe on your phone. You can take your friend's phone and get them to subscribe. It all helps other people to find us. Next question is one I can relate to. This was sent in by Manoj and they ask, some people say our attention has gone from 12 seconds to 8 seconds. How long by task can we focus and concentrate before we get tired and how long to recover? Well, there's a couple of things going on there. I mean, how long can we concentrate? Depends on how interesting we find the task. We've all sort of <laughs> yeah, been enough. there for hours and then we find it interesting and it feels like, you know, wading through treacle when we don't find it interesting. So some of the research by Gloria Mark, who's at uh, University of California, has looked at attention span over time. So how quickly, if you're working on a Word document, for example, do you move away and check your email or whatever it is? And there does seem to be a downward trend. So 2004 is about two and a half minutes. Uh, 2012, we're down to 75 seconds. And last few years, it's gone down to 47 seconds. Wow. 
So what seems to be is, is this diminishing attention span, that we are struggling to focus on certain tasks. That's reflected in the way in which films and TV programmes are edited, now a lot more cuts than they used to be. You've only got to watch you know, older films from the 60s or 70s or whatever, and you realise there's longer scenes in there, and in commercials as well. And so the concern is that kids are being brought up in a world where they're being asked to switch attention all the time. And we know that self-regulation and self-control and the abilities to sustain attention is actually crucial in lots of areas. So that's the, the worry. That's the tension there. And I would say in our defence, it's because we've got more things clamouring for our attention to tech that pings at you a lot more. Yeah. And it's not a... An accident. There are people whose jobs are to design apps to be more invasive of your time and attention. So yeah, and, they're and, getting and, it. And, and absolutely. And of course, we can only attend to one thing at a time. Multitasking doesn't really exist psychologically. I'm so pleased you said that because I can't. No, no, people think they can. But actually, it turns out they're not listening to the other channel or, or whatever it is. So whenever you switch, there's a, a, a sort of cost to that. There's a time and, and actually a drop in performance as well. So if you're constantly switching between tasks, you, you find that your performance drops on any one of those tasks. And at this point, can I just make a general plea to people who are walking in public and using their phone to text? You may think you're multitasking. You're just doing two things badly. Uh, but yes, so the answer... The answer is that attention spans seem to be dropping off. And it's kind of worrying because, particularly with kids, when they need to attend to something, uh, they're, they're struggling to do that. So um, it's, it's a fascinating area. Yes, the research continues. Um, this question was sent in by Mark, and he says, the gut is sometimes referred to as our second brain. Does this mean that there is an underpinning of truth behind the idea of making decisions based on gut instinct? Well, I guess you could look at that psychologically and get into intuition, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, very complex and big area of psychology. But presumably you could look at it biologically too. I mean, yes, please. Uh, that's what we don't do enough of on this psychology podcast. <laughs> this is it's, it. This is the opportunity. straight biology. So, you know, the phrase gut feeling can be interpreted very literally because you have millions of neurons in your gut and uh, that means you can see it as a second brain. Chemicals like serotonin, often called your happy hormone, people assume is, is a brain hormone. 95% of that is made in your gut, in your mm -hmm. gut lining. Um, I know I have a friend who is a professor of the brain-gut axis and he investigates all the signals that your gut is making and giving to your brain, things that don't go into your conscious brain but are still a big part of, you know, your functioning. And there's all sorts of fascinating questions in there about things like the decision behind why you get stressed, things to do with irritable bowel syndrome, why you eat things when you know when you're hungry, when you're not. There's a whole world of brain-related activity to do with your gut. And as it mentioned in the question, this is the, the second brain this idea. Is, this is the second brain idea. However, I don't think, as far as I know, any of that research is related to decision-making. So I think there are two very different things going on here. There's gut instinct, which is decision-making, and that is not, as far as I know, connected to actual decisions being made by neurons in your gut. The way I try to access my intuition, if I've got, say, two decisions, A and B, is I make the decision 
I go, that's it, I'm going with A. Yeah. And then just seeing how it feels. That's often the quickest way of going, oh, actually, oh, it doesn't feel right yeah. to go with B, is to actually make the decision in one direction or the other and see how it feels. That's often when, for me, sort of intuition bubbles up. And then do you do the other one and see how that feels? No. Oh, I just okay. go with the other one because it, by definition it's going to have to feel better than the first one. If I went with that and it felt even worse, that would be a bit strange. I suppose it could do. I oh, see, because I've done this and I'm like, oh, that doesn't sound good. And then I go with the other one and, oh, that's not good either. Well, sometimes you think the the problem is that I've created two decisions when there's C, D and E as well. So let's just hold off. Living with ambiguity uh, is, in my opinion, quite a good thing. But yeah, psychology of intuition. Amazing. Moving on, our final question of the episode was sent in by Vic after listening to our second Myths episode where we talked about out-of-body experiences. And she says, I've recently been doing some research into dyslexia and I read that people with dyslexia can't in their mind's eye put themselves in the position of the viewer. Rather, it's easier for them to imagine a scene from just behind the person. So, for example, if you close their eyes and imagine driving a car, it's easier for someone with dyslexia to visualise the scene from just behind the shoulder of the driver rather than through the eyes of the person driving. Could this somehow link to people's experience of feeling that they have an out-of-body experience? Wow. When we spoke about out-of-body experiences, we said that one of the things that drove it was this ability, uh, the ease of the ability to imagine yourself in from another perspective. Um, I couldn't find much, indeed any, research linking that ability with dyslexia, has to be said. There is research on dyslexia and visual skills, And what I find fascinating about it is it's one of these areas where it depends on what you think you're looking at, influences the questions you ask, therefore the answers you get. If you see dyslexia as a, a problem with reading, as it certainly is, that's what you look at and that's the answer you get. If you think, well, hold on a second, rather than looking at what dyslexics are bad at, why don't we look at what they excel at? Then you do different research, you get different answers. And there's some evidence when it comes to creativity and to visual thinking that dyslexics outperform other individuals. When it comes to being an entrepreneur, around about a third of entrepreneurs see themselves as having uh, issues with dyslexia. And that that's more than the general population? Oh, it's usually more than the general population. So I'm dyslexic, and ah. so, yeah, so I have enormous problems with reading as a kid. And so when I see all these studies, which are just about the problems of dyslexia, it's not that I think they're inaccurate, I'm, I'm sure it's very helpful, but I always think well, it's just part of the picture. Dyslexics engage the world in different ways. They tend to like to speak to other people. They tend not keen on reading. They tend to be quite creative people who look at big picture thinking and and play around with ideas in their mind and so on. And so it's a good example of of how sometimes lived experience, but certainly the way in which psychologists conceive of a problem influences the work that they do and the findings they get. How do you read all the papers as a dyslexic? I get someone else to do it and they just tell me. Yeah, no. OK, that's, that's probably quicker as well. Yeah. Um, Ingenious. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm not very detail-oriented. I've got a very short attention span. We'll talk about attention earlier on. So I can get through a vast number of papers and I will always pick up the general gist of them. I'm much more comfortable with that big picture thinking. And it's why you know most scientists actually will, in their career, drill further and further down into a smaller and smaller area. That's the old gag that then they end up knowing lots about nothing. I, I think what I tend to do, and some of my colleagues tend to do, is that idea of kind of getting into a helicopter, flying above it all and seeing what's the big picture. And, and that's really why I've been interested in all of these different areas rather than knowing a huge amount about a smaller topic. So what have we learnt 
We've learnt that weather affects your luckiness. Uh, we have learnt how to hopefully uh, not have objects stolen from you, which unfortunately is a lesson I've learnt uh, through personal experience. Uh, we've learnt that our attention span is under attack and it's probably not our fault. That the replication crisis in psychology is very real, but still there are interesting ideas out there. There is such a thing as a gut brain. That when it comes to parenting, praising effort is perhaps better than praising ability. And finally, Vic, we haven't managed to find any evidence linking dyslexia to out-of-body experiences, but we did learn a lot about Richard. From Podomo and Telltale, this has been Richard Wiseman's On Your Mind. Hosted by Professor Richard Wiseman and Marnie Chesterton. Our producer is Kate White. The executive producers for Podomo are Jake Chudno and Matt White. And for Telltale are Rami Sabar and Jago Lee. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at WisemanPod. Where we'll be regularly asking you for questions for future episodes. You can also email us at WisemanPod at Podomo.com. And if you like this podcast, tell your friends, leave us a review. If you don't like it, tell your friends you did. Why should you be the only ones to suffer? Although it does help others find us. And don't forget to subscribe. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.